The Second Vatican Council from 1962 to 1965, perhaps the most controversial event in the history of Catholicism, in the history of Christianity. Yeah, you could argue Martin Luther, Reformation, schism between Constantinople and Rome, but then you look at the demographics, you look at the numbers, you look at the confusion, you look at the drop-off on mass attendance, infant baptisms, adult conversions, vocations to the priesthood, vocations to the religious life, male and female, monks, brothers, nuns, sisters. It's a downward spiral. And ever since Vatican II, since 1965, there have been synods. There's actually been 16 synods. We'll talk a little bit about that today. The newest one is, get it, the Synod on Synodality. And for a couple years now, I've been suggesting that this synodal process that's been happening since Vatican II is essentially a ghost council. It is essentially the third Vatican Council. The Pope calls them, bishops come, they attend, and at the end of each one, usually, I think actually every time, we'll look at it in a little bit, the Pope issues a document, usually an apostolic exhortation. Functionally, pragmatically, it is like an ecumenical council, and it reboots every year or two. So, just yesterday, actually, maybe it was a couple days before that, Pope Francis announced that the Synod of Synodality, which has not been popular, by the way, will be extended yet another year. What is the Synod of Synodality? The Synod of Synodality is bishops hosting people who are Catholic, but not even Catholic. They're inviting Lutherans and Methodists and even Jews and Muslims and unbelievers, atheists, to come and say, what can we do better? How can we shape Catholicism? How can we update, modernize to be better for you? And the idea is, through this process of synodality, we will renew our church and renew ourselves and become even better and better and better while our numbers decline, decline, decline. It's essentially Vatican III. And I was actually pleased to be backed up by this by someone not on the right, not tratty, traditional like me, but someone on the left, Massimo Fascioli. He says here on the twit, tweet, you can see it right over my shoulder, with today's announcement, and that is that the Synod of Synodality is going to continue to go for another year, the Synod on Synodality looks a little closer to something like a Vatican III. Yes, this process of Synod of Synodality. Here's a shot of the 16 synods since Vatican II. You can see the very first year was 1967. Vatican II was over in 1965. So this new process of synods happening, you can see on the screen, 1967, then 1971, 74, 77, 80, 83, 87, 90, 94, 01, 05, 
2008, 2012, 15, 18, and then the new one, Synod on Synod. And then there's been some special ones like the Synod on the Amazon, which brought us such things as Pachamama. We'll look at that as well. We'll look in particular at the synods hosted and called for by Pope Francis. Before the show started, I asked in a poll, and the poll's still live if you're watching live, do we need a Vatican III? And we might even ask, do we need synods, global synods, in Rome every couple years? Is this the mode of Catholicism established, instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ? Some may say yes. They may say, Christ gave the keys to Peter. I mean, get the keys out every year or two. Get some people, consult, turn the keys, bind loose, send people home. We should be doing this every year. But in the history of the church, that was very rare. In fact, the first few ecumenical councils, Nicaea I, Constantinople I, uh, Council of Ephesus, Council of Chalcedon, weren't even in Rome. Yes, ratified by the popes, but not even in Rome. You see synods, you see councils. For example, in 382, Pope Damasus had a council or synod where he ratified the contents of the Holy Bible, something that Protestants need from the Catholic Church. All right, so that's today's show. We'll pray the Our Father in Latin. We'll look into it. And today will be a special show because I'll do a Q&A. So if you have a question for me on Francis, on the Synod of Synodality, or anything in general, today is the day. So today's show, at the end of the presentation, we'll do a Q&A, and you can do that live over in the chat or below. Before we even get started, please give this video the thumbs up, like, and share it on Facebook or Twitter. If you're watching on Facebook or Twitter, just retweet it or share it. If you're on YouTube, hit the share button and share it over on Facebook. And if you're new, please do subscribe and hit the notification bell to be notified every time I go live and provide content like this. All right, let's pray the Our Father together in Latin. Oremus nomini Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater Noster, qui es in celi sanctificetur nomen tuum, adveniet regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tuas, cut in cello et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis odie, et dimite nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nos amalo. Amen. All holy popes, pray for us. In nomine Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. All right, well, let's take a look at some of these synods. Before we do, I'm going to share a tweet that I put up this morning. And it is this one here. Modernists say the Holy Spirit is directing the synod on synodality. If that were true, it would be wrong. We might say it should be a sin to ever end the synod on synodality. Think about that for a moment. If the Holy Ghost, the third person of the Trinity, is directing the synod on synodality. Again, what is the synod of synodality? It is consulting Catholics and non-Catholics at the parish and diocesan level 
and then reporting back to Rome on changes, updates that need to be made. It's been quite controversial because in Germany, they're saying we need women priests. We need homosexual marriage. We want an end to the ban on contraception. We want more affirmations for pride, these kind of things. And so that puts Rome, puts the Pope in an uncomfortable situation. You're saying, I want to hear your voice. I want your request. It's like me saying, hey, family, I'm going to sit everybody down and I want to hear your requests on how to run uh, the evenings here at the Marshall family. And they're like, well, we want ice cream for dinner. We want candy for breakfast. We, we want our new bedtime to be 11 p.m. And all the teenagers say, well, we want curfews to be 1 a.m. And on and on and on. And that makes me have to be a really strong father and say, nope, 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 nope. And then everyone's like, well, why do we even have this meeting? You told everything that we wanted to have. And you just said no to it all. What's the point? Or I'm a weak father and I say, okay, well, maybe your, your curfew can't be 2 a.m., but it can be midnight, something insane for a teenager to stay out till midnight. Or, okay, well, you can't have ice cream for dinner, but you can have ice cream every night after dinner. Or you can have ice cream for lunch. I don't know. Ridiculous, right? We don't consult people, especially non-Catholics, of what they think Catholicism should be. Who do we consult? We consult God, our Lord and Savior, true God, true man. Jesus Christ instituted and told us what the church should be and what it should look like. And he committed that vision, that blueprint, to 12 apostles and St. Paul. And through apostolic succession and sacred tradition, they have passed it all the way down to this year. We consult them to find out what is God's will for our life. We don't consult the masses. We don't consult people at the local parish level. In the tweet, I go on to say, well, I'll just read the first part since I went off the rails a little bit there. Modernists say the Holy Spirit is directing the Synod on Synodality. If that were true, it would be wrong to ever end the Synod on Synodality. Therefore, they will never end it. For the modernists, this Synod is perpetual Vatican II, but on life support. And then I put in parentheses, pull the plug. Do you agree with me? Should we pull the plug on the Synod's? It's taking this same idea that we must update, modernize, improve Catholicism to reach the masses. And what do we see happen? They update the mass. They update baptism. They update the liturgy of the hours. They update confirmation, holy orders. They update everything. The catechism, canon law. What happens? People lost interest. When you chase the masses and conform to their will, it's always changing. You want a contemporary mass? Okay, Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary. Yeah, but that was 1969. Maybe earlier. What are you going to do now? You're going to have the Drake mass in 2022? What are you going to do? Chasing what's always new? Or hold on to what is perennial. 
what is constant, what is traditional. All right, here are the synods that have been hosted by Pope Francis. You can see them below me on the screen. In 2015, we had the Synod on Vocation and Mission of the Family and the Church. And from that, we got the Relatio, which is pretty controversial. And then we got Amoris Laetitia, Apostolic Exhortation, controversial. It seemingly, have we ever got any answers on that? Well, octa non verba, actions speak louder than words. It indicates that if you are married and divorced, and you remarry outside the church and you're having sex with that person, you can continue to receive communion if you receive accompaniment from your pastor. You can confess and not repent or change that lifestyle and receive communion, full life in the church. Also, same-sex couples can receive acknowledgement and be part of the church as Eucharistic ministers and lectors and all those things because Holy matrimony and chastity and monogamy are ideals that few can reach. So, you know, we make some accommodations along the way. Then in 2018, we had the Synod on Young People, Faith, and Vocational Discernment. That gave us Christus Vivit. Then in 2019... We had the Pan-Amazonian Synod. That was a special synod. It wasn't one of the numbers of the 16. That brought us Carida Amazonia and, of course, the Pachamama. The Pachamama idol that was paraded um, all over St. Peter's Basilica. They burned incense to it. They carried it in procession on a boat. And they put the idol right in front of the bones of St. Peter at the high altar of St. Peter's. And I've said, and I'll say it again, St. Peter's Basilica needs to be re-consecrated because it has been defiled by an idol, a pagan idol. And we know from Psalm 95 that the gods of the nations, the gods of the Gentiles are demons. Zeus, Jupiter, Shiva, Ganesh, Pachamama, Thor, Odin. These are demons that were worshipped by our forefathers, by the nations. All the ancient idols, totems, gods in Africa, Asia, Europe, North and South America, Australia, all those were demonic entities that led people away from God. Thus teaches the Psalms, thus teaches St. Paul in Romans in the his epistle to the Romans. And then in 2023, we have the Synod on Synodality, a synod for a synodal church, communion, participation, and mission. And, you know, this kind of goes back to the Novus Ordo. This whole idea, it arose vocally in the 1950s. Lay people need to participate in the daily life of the church. What does that look like? Does that mean pray? and sanctify your life and become a saint? Well, no, they wanted to add to that that during the liturgy, you needed to be doing stuff. You needed to be speaking words out loud. And in order to facilitate that, they had to get rid of Latin. And so they went to the vernacular. Then that wasn't enough. 
that everyone was saying stuff in the vernacular. Then they needed people to be doing stuff. And so they had to change the liturgy. So one of the obvious examples in the Novus Ordo, if you've been the traditional Latin mass and you've been in the Novus Ordo, one of the most striking differences is immediately after the priest consecrates the body and blood of Christ, he says, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. And there's a memorial acclamation where all the lay people basically get to butt in and talk during the consecration, during the anaphora, during the Eucharistic canon, right? Right at that point. That's not traditional in the Roman rite, right? If you watch the traditional Latin mass or follow it in the missal, he consecrates the body and blood. And in the consecration of the blood, he says, mysterium fidei, the mystery of faith, that indicates the blood, not something that the people are supposed to say on cue. That kind of stuff. Also, the Holy Week, starting in 1955, began to add parts for the lay people that traditionally weren't there. And then they went even further, and they had lay Eucharistic ministers, they had lay lectors, they brought in uh, more acolytes, altar girls, uh, the cantor, cantress lady who comes out during the psalm, and she says... Um, uh, what's a psalm uh, antiphon? Um, I was glad when they said unto me, we will go unto the house of the Lord. And she puts her hands up like a field goal. And then everyone else has to say it. You know what I'm talking about? All those things were added in. They're not in the traditional Latin mass. They're added to get people to do more. Then they said, well, we got to have uh, parish councils with the lay people on the parish councils telling the priests what to do. And then we got to get these boards at the diocese and get the lay people on the boards. And now we've even got the Pope appointing lay people, namely lay women, onto uh, dicasteries and congregations in Rome to choose bishops and do other things like that. So now. It's to the next level where we're actually going to go to everybody and say, how can we change even more? What are you unhappy about and what can we modify? And update and update. And it's like Catholicism has become general motors. You know, you look at the Silverado truck or the Camaro or the Corvette and they're like, consumers... Tell us what you want in the next generation of the Corvette. You know, what do you like? Body style, engine? Do you want naturally aspirated? You want supercharged? You want mid-engine, front engine? Tell us, you know, performance package. Do you want stitching on the seats? And so every year, right, they put out a new version of the Chevy Silverado or the Suburban, the Cadillac, the Corvette. Is that Catholic, though? Do we go to the consumer and we have Catholicism 1941 version? The Bel Air. I don't know what the Bel Air been in the 40s. I know the Bel Air was in the 50s. The 55 Bel Air. And then we got the 1965 something, the 1970. And every year it's a new car. Update the truth, update the morals, update the liturgy? Or is there something more perennial 
more constant. If you watch my podcast, you know something more perennial, something more constant. You can't have synods and documents and liturgies that contradict previous councils, namely the Council of Trent. Now, you can't say if anyone says a man is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. That's Council of Trent. And then Pope Francis says, we and Lutherans are in agreement on justification. It's like, wait a second. Council of Trent anathematized anyone who said what Luther taught about justification, faith alone. And then Francis says, we teach the same thing now, now, 500 years later, as Lutherans. How's that work? The way it works, well, they pretend the way it works, are these synods, revisions of the catechism, constantly changing it, updating it, massaging it. So it used to be that not only did the Vatican teach that death penalty was righteous and admissible in certain just cases, the Vatican even had its own executioner who would execute people worthy of the death penalty. That's truth. That's history. That's reality. And now Francis says the death penalty is inadmissible. How does that happen? It happens because you get to modernize and re revise every year like a Chevy Corvette. You get it? I said this before, I'll say it again. A traditionalist, I consider myself a traditionalist. Whenever I see new problems like, uh, you know, embryonic stem cell research or cloning or new liturgies or, you know, transgenderism, things that, yes, yeah, some of those things had connections in the past. We have new things. As a traditionalist, when I look at contemporary problems and contemporary controversies and crises, what I do as a traditionalist is I go into the past and with Christ and the apostles and sacred scripture and tradition, I interpret my modern situation in light of the past tradition. So the lens for the modern moment is the tradition of what went before me. I'm in a river moving along in tradition. I'm encountering a contemporary situation with contemporary problems, but my frame of reference my lens is always what came before. That's a traditionalist. What's a modernist? A modernist is someone who takes the contemporary situation and with that as the lens, examines the past. So the modernist takes, take for example, Father James Martin, the Jesuit. He looks at LGBT rights, um, he looks at all these things going on uh, in politics, you know, the difficult time we have now with uh, abortion and contraception and all those things. He says, yeah, so we have all of this. So we're now going to look at tradition the last 2,000 years in light of our modern excellence, our, 
our updated, better point of view, our more humane, our more enlightened point of view. So the traditionalist is, is using tradition in the past to examine the modern situation, and the modernist is using the modern situation to examine the past. So the modernist will look and they'll say, well, yeah, you know, I don't really know if Moses split the Red Sea and crossed it by God's power. I don't really know if Jesus multiplied fishes and loaves. Seems kind of mythological, primitive, weird. And that leads them to say, well, yeah, I mean, when Paul said that same-sex attraction between men and, men and men and women and women in Romans chapter 1 derives from them worshiping idols and denying God and worshiping creation. Yeah, it's kind of primitive. You know, Paul was kind of 2,000 years ago, didn't understand human sexuality like we do now in an enlightened way. So, you know, we can kind of ignore St. Paul on that issue. When St. Paul says he does not allow a woman to teach in church, they say, well, you know, he's kind of sexist, kind of misogynist. That was 2,000 years ago. That was his, you know, culture. You know, nowadays we're more enlightened, so we should have women priests and women given sermons. So that's a traditionalist and a modernist. And I would challenge you today, before we go into the Q&A, decide which are you. In fact, let me know right now in the live chat or in the comments below. Are you a traditionalist or are you a modernist? Do you view the past through the modern lens or do you view the modern moment through the traditional lens? That will determine if you are a traditionalist or a modernist. We are now going to flip over and do some Q&A question and answer. Before I do, I just want to make a moment here and thank everyone who helped launch my new book, Antichrist and Apocalypse who got a copy of it, who read it, who has left a review. There's almost almost a thousand reviews on Amazon.com. It's a bestseller in four, number one bestseller in four categories. It's the number one new release in New Testament commentaries. What is it? It is a description from the church fathers, from the saints, and from the popes of who the Antichrist will be. So it's not zany, it's not weird, it's not outrageous. It's very based in tradition. And then it is a verse-by-verse -verse commentary of the book of Revelation, the book of the Apocalypse. And it uses the church fathers like Jerome, St. John Chrysostom, I mean, Augustine, and analyzes all the crazy imagery that's in the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast, the sea beast, the land beast, the whore of Babylon. Do you know who the whore of Babylon is? It's all in there. Uh, the four horsemen, the seven plagues, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the lamb of Christ, the lion of Judah, the sevenfold spirit, the martyrs under the altar in heaven, the seven angels, all these things are described in detail. It unveils Revelation. So check it out. And if you'd like a signed copy of that book, don't you don't want to go through Amazon.com. You want to get an autographed version. You can go over to Patreon.com forward slash DR Taylor Marshall. 
That's where people support my work, like this podcast and books I'm writing. The people who help support me do that are called patrons, and you sign up to do that at patreon.com. And what do I do? I write you notes, I send you messages, and I send you thank you gifts, like signed books. So if you are at the uh, student level or above, the 50 or above, I'm sending you, you may not have got it yet, but it's coming, a signed copy of Antichrist Apocalypse, just to say thank you for supporting. New people can get that as well. And at the lowest level, I'll send you a signed copy of my book, Rosary in 50 Pages, and I'll send you a free rosary with details on how to pray the rosary. So you can get all that at patreon.com forward slash DR Taylor Marshall. All right, let's do some Q&A. And before we launch that Q&A, let's get those likes up. I can't see what the likes are for some reason right now. But uh, everybody hit the like button, share this video, and subscribe. Let's get those likes up. Smash that like button. 100 more likes. Do it. Okay. Q&A. Uh, the rule on Q&A, it always helps me when you leave a question mark, at least one. Um, that way, because there's a lot right now. Uh, I'm streaming right now on Facebook, on Twitter, and on YouTube. And the chat goes really, really fast. And on those three platforms right now, I'm seeing there are almost a thousand people. So there's a lot of people. So um, I'm going to try to get to as many questions as possible. If you don't use a question mark, my eyes probably won't see it as a question. And uh, I won't know where to go. So are you ready? And then if you do a super chat on YouTube, I will try to privilege those. Sometimes I don't even see those, but I will try to get those. Okay. David Wilson on YouTube says, how are these synods funded? Who gets paid and who ultimately is paying for them? It's a good question. It is very expensive. You got to bring people to Rome and house people in Rome and feed people in Rome. As we saw in the Amazonian synod, they brought all kinds of people from South America, housed them and all that. I'm not begrudging it, but I am saying that there is a cost to that. Who's paying for it? Well, it's being paid by donors and maybe out of a, uh, a, a Vatican fund. As you know, if you've read my book, Infiltration, the Vatican Bank is a shady institution with no audits, no transparency to the world. So no one will ever really know where the money comes in, goes out, where it goes. There is no accountability. Uh, the Vatican polices itself when it comes to the bank, which is why they have their own bank uh, with no regulations on it. And then when people get in there and do audit and raise questions, they tend to get fired. So um, if you want to learn more about that, check out my book, Infiltration. Do I have a copy of it up here? Yep, here it is. No, it's not. It's gone. Oh, well, my book, Infiltration. Check it out. Oh, here it is. Oh, I wanted to mention, uh, people always ask me books on Vatican II. And the books I recommend are The Rhine Flows Into the Tiber, History of Vatican II by Father Wiltgen. This book right here. I recommend this book. It shows how the German, the liberal German theologians and bishops 
manipulated second the second Vatican council very good book if you really want a definitive take on the second Vatican council I recommend Roberto de Matei's the second Vatican council an unwritten story And then if you want to know about the lead up to the Second Vatican Council, during the council, and what happened after the council, of course, I recommend my own book, Infiltration, The Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. Those three books, if you've read those three books, you will know more than 99% of people when they're talking about the Second Vatican Council. Okay, more questions. Here we go. All right, here we go. Daniel says, Hey, Dr. T, thank you so much for your work. You helped me a great deal in my conversion. As a father, what advice do you have to keep your children from losing the faith during the teenage years? This is a great question. It's one that I'm very interested in, and, and uh, I've talked to a lot of dads. Uh, I think one thing that you're going to have to do is detach yourself from the deep desire that all parents have, which is my teenagers will never struggle with their faith. They will never commit a mortal sin. Um, and they will always be rock solid from age, I guess, 13 to 25, 30. The reality is there are really holy, good people who aren't faking it, who I know whose children get off track and it can be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be pornography. It could be impurity. Um, it could be all kinds of things that no parent ever wants for their child. You have to realize that your own path, your own life has had briar, briar patches and stumbling and problems. And just because someone receives everything they need, and probably I'm not a perfect dad and I'm not a perfect parent, so that I don't presume that I've given every single thing my children need. But even if you did, the possibility is there. I remember talking to a priest. Uh, actually, I was in confession at the Vatican in Rome. This was maybe in the late two 2000 teens. And uh, one of the things I was confessing was just, you know, anxiety or worry about this question that you're talking about. What about your young adult kids or teenagers? And the priest said, well, you raise them in the Catholic faith. You provide them good catechism, good catechesis. You pray with them. You teach them to pray. You be a good example. And then you set them free. And you need to realize that a good majority of their life in fact, the moment of death is the key moment of whether you go to heaven or hell. If you have grace, sanctifying grace in your soul at the moment of death, you will be saved. If you don't, if you're in mortal sin, you will not be saved. That moment for most parents, of course, some parents do see their children die. But you will likely be dead before, likely, before any of your children die. Now, some parents have the very tragic situation of seeing their own children die. That's on them. It's free will. Adam and Eve were taught by God. They had infused knowledge. 
They were constituted in sanctifying and divine grace. They had no, I mean, there was Satan who tempted them with words, but they didn't grow up barraged throughout life with temptations. And they also didn't have concupiscence or original sin. Even they fell into sin. So I would say, be patient, do not be anxious, and as a father, the most important thing you can do is be legit. Truly pray, truly teach, pray your rosary every night with your kids, catechize your kids, have fun, be present, do your duty, fulfill your office as a husband and father, and then the Holy Ghost has to work with those kids from 18 to 98. You know, that those, those extra 80 years or so, they have to be guided by those principles. They can reject them or accept them. So you plant the seed, you water it, you fertilize it, and then you set them free. And hopefully your example informs their decision for their whole life. All right, that was a good question. Thanks, Daniel. All right, I'm going through here looking for some more questions and looking for the question marks. I'm seeing, I'm scrolling past tons of them because I don't see question marks. Here's a question mark right here. Oh, that's about Seven Day Adventists, and I don't know anything about them. Here we go. Michael Nix, Jr., any advice for people still struggling with sins of the flesh? Well, that would be for everyone. Sins of the flesh. A lot of times when people say that, they mean lust. But technically, sins of the flesh include pride, include anger. The flesh is what St. Paul in Romans uses for concupiscence. The law of the flex. Uh, the law, no, no, I just, Lex, the law is Lex, the law of concupiscence, the tinder of concupiscence, the tinder of sin. If you're alive and you're not our Lord Jesus Christ and you're not our lady and you're not John the Baptist and perhaps St. Joseph and other saints who were confirmed in grace, but if you're part of the 99.999 whatever of us, you are still struggling with the sins of the flesh, and you will till you die. Thomas Aquinas says, and theologians after the Council of Trent say, the reason for that is to make you stronger as a saint. You have the outward battle against the world and the devil, but you have the internal battle against the flesh. You're constantly being betrayed from the inside. You know, like my book, Infiltration, the plot to destroy the church from within. This is the plot to destroy you from within. And God leaves it there. God, you would you would kind of hope that when you get baptized, that just goes away. It's like God just like, okay, your original sin is gone. Here's some grace. And all those evil desires are just washed away, gone forever in baptism. God leaves them in there. The concupiscence remains after baptism. That's why even though babies are baptized, they start to steal cookies and manipulate 
when their children are thinking, how can this be? You're a beautiful, perfect little baptized child, six-year-old, nine-year-old, and yet you're being a rascal. It's because there's concupiscence within us, the law of the flesh. What do all the saints say about overcoming the law of the flesh? In the live chat, what do the saints say? What's the best way to overcome the sins of the flesh? I'll wait for you. Leave a comment right now. What is it? Penance, and in particular, fasting. You must do penance, especially as a man. This is something we need to teach our teenagers too. Teenage boys and teenage girls. You will not get through adolescence in purity if you do not equip yourself with scripture, prayer, penance. You must mortify the flesh. Mortify means put it to death. So, you tell yourself, I'm not eating between meals. Your stomach says, feed me, give me cookie, give me pie, give me a bag of chips, give me something salty, give me something sweet. This is what I want. You say, well, okay, and you do it. You do, you make that same decision a hundred times. What did you just, what did your mind just tell your body? The body's in control. It's like you're doing synod of synodality over your whole human person. Well, I'm just listening to what my stomach and my loins want, and I give my stomach and my loins what they want every single time. If you did that to a child, you'd have a spoiled little brat throwing ten, uh, temper tantrums, and that's exactly what goes on with our stomach and with our loins. Every time they want satisfaction or pleasure, we give it to them. And then we wonder, why are we ruled by our passions? So what do you say? You want something salty or sweet? No. We're waiting until 6 p.m. for dinner. Oh, I'm so hungry. I want something salty or sweet. I want a Coke. I want a bag of Cheetos or some, you know, these horrible junk food. You say no. You don't eat meat on Fridays. Well, that's uncomfortable to sacrifice. It's difficult. We have to change our cooking. Yeah, it is difficult. It's called mortifying the flesh. Lent is not just giving up milk chocolate. Lent is maybe giving up all meat for the entire Lent. All alcohol. All smoking. It's hard. It's difficult. And then you also mortify, have cussy eyes. You see a really attractive person. You want to take a second look or a third look and you say, nope, you don't get that. You look down, you turn around, you change course. These are the things that you must do. And they go all the way to death. All the way to death. That's the only, only thing I think the saints say. You pray. And you do penance. Remember when they couldn't, the apostles couldn't drive out those demons? And Christ drives them out. And they're like, how did you do that? We tried. And he goes, some only come out by prayer and fasting. You have to pray. You have to fast. If you're not fasting, by the way, like there's 12 months in a year. 
and a whole month goes by and you never fasted. Now, I'm not talking to people that have uh, medical issues that would prevent them from fasting. But if you're a normal, healthy adult who's not diagnosed with any problems and you can go on long walks, right? And you don't have crazy blood pressure. You're like a generally normal, healthy person. And you don't fast. As a Catholic, you need to. Fasting is a normative part of Catholicism. And the church teaches us Fridays are a fasting day. Always, unless Christmas is on top of it or a major feast day like the Immaculate Conception, Assumption lands on a Friday. Okay, it's not a fast day. But generally, Fridays are a fast day and your Fridays should be a little difficult. Jesus died on the cross on Friday. That's Good Friday. And he rose again on Sunday. So your Friday should always be your most uncomfortable day. The day where you maybe don't drink alcohol and don't have meat. Don't have dessert. Don't have sugar in your coffee. And then Sunday should always be your happiest, most fest. All right, we're back live. It looks like we dropped our feed. And we're resuming with question and answers. And uh, yeah, okay, we're all back. Everybody's back on here. That means, unfortunately, I lost the stream of previous questions. So we're going to start over with questions. Uh, you can ask me about Pope Francis and the Synod of Synodality, Vatican II, Vatican III, anything we discussed in uh, the previous podcast. Or you can ask me something unrelated like we just covered already, like how do you make sure your teenage young adults remain Catholic? How do you fight uh, sins of the flesh, etc. Et so here comes more questions. Here they go. Uh, this is from S. Draper. Do you do any spiritual advising or directing? No. Two reasons. I'm not a priest. First reason. Second reason is... How can I guide you over a river that I have not yet crossed? I am a sinner. I'm on YouTube. I write books. But that doesn't mean that I'm a saint. And it doesn't mean that I'm qualified to give individual practical advice into a person's life. Can I tell people, hey, you should not eat meat on Fridays. You should fast. You should read the Bible. You should you know, go to Latin Mass. You should try to go to confession every two weeks. Yes, because all I'm doing is repeating what saints and popes and church fathers have said. That's the safe way that I go. But, you know, people come to me and they said, hey, uh, I'd like you to counsel me on my marriage or I'd like you to help me with this addiction or this problem or I like you. And I, I always say no, not because I don't love these people or like these people. It's just because I'm not qualified and I don't have confidence that I would lead them in the correct way because these things are very complicated, very complicated, uh, especially when it has to do with marriage, uh, delicate sins, confidentialities and all that. And it's just not my place. So I do not do that. The, the closest I come is giving general advice on what have traditionally been the norms of Catholicism. And you're also never going to hear me say you should go follow this and that unapproved Marian apparition. I don't do that either. It's not my place. As I say, I'm just a dad on a webcam 
And even in my books, like the new book, Antichrist and Apocalypse, I'm just repeating what previous saints, church fathers have said on certain subjects. What I'm trying to do is some of the heavy lifting and then package that into an easy, consumable way for you to be edified, to be built up as a Catholic. That's what I try to do. All right. Giovanni Yusuf says, Taylor, did you get involved in your local diocese synod process? If so, what was your experience of involvement? I find most trads had zero interest and didn't really get involved at all. Well, Giovanni, do you think I showed up to give my input? I did not. I do give kind of my input on the podcast. Um, but I have spoken to, encouraged, and given advice to several people who did go and get involved in the synodal process. And to take away all the mystery, I'll tell you what I told these people. I said, be kind, be respectful, do not come off as the know-it-all trad who's there to shame everybody about not being Latin Mass, pre-Vatican II, Latin, and all that. Also, I encourage them to emphasize, and I think a lot of traditionalists are now doing the same thing, emphasizing that when you have the traditional Latin Mass at a parish, you integrate different cultures. So at the Novus Ordo, there's the Vietnamese Mass, there's the Spanish Mass, there's the English Mass, and there's the Tongan Mass, and then there's the Saturday night, 5.30, Boomer Age Mass. All those demographics, they never mix. There's the Boomer Mass, the Spanish Mass, Filipino Mass, Vietnamese Mass. At the traditional Latin Mass, I've been a part, actively a part of three different traditional Latin Mass parishes, you're all in Mass together. I've been sitting in the pew next to people who are Hispanic, and they're using the missile. I look at their missile. It's got Latin on one side and Spanish on the other. They are able to do the responses and follow in Latin as I am in Latin. I have been overseas with people who did not eat, speak English, and we were in the same Mass saying the same words and the same prayers side by side. So the traditional Latin mass, this is something that we need to emphasize to the liberals and the modernists is, hey, if you, you're always talking about integration and cultures, appreciating it. The traditional Latin mass experience is the only way that you actually get all those people together. Elbow to elbow in the pew. So I'd encourage people when they're going to the synodal meetings to emphasize the intercommunal integration that the Latin Mass provides. The other thing I've encouraged people to do is to make sure you carefully, but not in a boastful, prideful way, that you carefully describe to everyone present how there are so many young families young children and births at the traditional Latin Mass. This is a way, I think, that vindicates the traditional life, the traditional Latin Mass, 
without saying nanny nanny boo boo we are better and sounding like a, a jackass you just say look we have these beautiful young couples that are 23 25 28 30 34 they're coming they're getting married they're having babies we're growing we have so many baptisms every saturday so many marriages so much life you know and we don't have different masses for different age groups we're all just together after mass we drink coffee you know and it's it's you know 20 year olds talking to 80 year olds you know walking the 80 year old granny out with her walker to help her get in her car maybe driving her to mass bring like we're all integrated races languages age groups this is what all the synod people are excited about we should be excited about it too and our communities do it whether we like it or not because we're forced to do it that's the traditional way so i have not been directly involved but these are the kind of things that i encourage traditionalists when they do get involved at the synodal level to emphasize and i think all of us would do well to uh to emphasize those things as well so giovanni thanks for that great question all right moving on here can we just drop vatican II, please oh it's a little complicated here's a good one paul mcnamee uh, Dr. Taylor, what is the worst possible outcome of this synod? Well, I mean, who would have thought when we had the Pan-Amazonian synod that they would bring an idol of Mother Earth, Pachamama, into St. Peter's Basilica and prance around with it and burn incense and carry it on their shoulders like an Ashtoreth pole? So I think I can't, I would have never expected that they would have done that. And yet they did do that. So what would be the worst possible outcome here? Um, people are speculating. I think the Holy Ghost protects and guides the church. So I don't think it'll happen. But people are speculating that we will see an apostolic exhortation written by Pope Francis that will somehow in an ambiguous way or in a footnote or whatever, open the door to women being ordained, maybe deacons, then priests, something like that, or a formal same-sex union blessing ritual, which has already been formulated in Belgium through their synodal process. I did a podcast about it about two weeks ago. So yeah, that's actually happening in places in Europe. And if that were to trickle up into Rome and they actually moved on it, Pope Francis, it's not beyond him to do something like that. But of course, I really doubt it. But that, I think, would be the worst outcome of the current synodal process. Paul, thanks for that question. All right, let's take another here. This is a good one. Lisa Dudzik. Do you support traditional Catholic boarding schools for boys? Uh, I don't think it's a bad idea. Um, but boarding schools, if not done properly, can be bad. So, um, you know, there was the, the former, I'm trying to remember the name of it, help me out in the live chat, 
what was the one that was associated with the fraternity of St. Peter's up in Pennsylvania? I forget the name of it. It's sort of been re, um, reestablished in a good way. I understand. Help me out in the live chat if anyone knows the name of it. Anyhow, there, there was definitely some uh, pedophilia happening there and immoral things happening there, even though it was trad and conservative and all that. And that's really ultimately, you know, the biggest fear that you're, you're, someone help me out. What's the name of it? Also mods, can you delete the dating site uh, comment person? I'd appreciate that. Oh, Gregory the Great. Thank you, Lisa. Yes. Gregory the Great um, originally had some problems there, sexual problems that devastated and destroyed lives of, of families. And uh, that's the problem is it's a risk where you're essentially delegating your parenting to other people that you don't have perfect confidence in. Maybe you do, but I think there's always the concern about that. And so that, that's, that's my thought on that. And I will say this too, people need to hear this just because it's traditional doesn't mean it's de facto legit. That's one thing I've learned. I've been a traditional Catholic since 2010. Yes. So coming up on 13 years, I've been going to traditional night mass. Met a lot of whack, evil lay people who said they were traditional. And I've met some whack, evil, evil, duplicitous priests who under a cassock and the presumption of, I only pray the Latin Mass. We're wicked men. You know, closeted homosexuals who use, there are closeted homosexuals, active homosexuals who use the traditional Latin Mass as a cloak because lay people, traditional lay people around traditional priests are like, oh, Father, Father this, Father that. There is, I think, in Catholicism when it's proper, a due reverence to priests. And when I meet a priest, I generally shake his hand, kiss his hand, call him Reverend Father. I show all those respects. But there are some who use tradition because they know that you can be a priest, a celibate priest, and people will kind of give you, mm, okay, he's spiritual. Now, after the scandals, less. But then, oh, I'm a traditional priest. Like, oh, he wears a cassock. He says Latin Mass. We can trust him above and beyond everything. Do not do it. Do not do it. I know lots of people who have been burned by traditional priests. Not just in sexual ways, but other ways too. Personal problems. So I would just say, be careful. Whether it's boarding schools, parishes, spiritual direction, or whatever. As I always say, acta non verba, acta non verba, actions, not words. All right, one more question. We'll do one more. Should we flee to orthodoxy? No. Orthodoxy has uh, problems with same-sex unions. Orthodoxy has divorce and remarriage. 
up to three or four times. Orthodoxy has approval of contraception. So orthodox. I've met many Orthodox priests that when you talk to them and scratch beneath the surface, you find out they're originists and they believe that all people are going to heaven no matter what. You'd be surprised. So no, it's it's the grass is not greener there. All right, I'm looking for one final question here. I'm looking for those question marks. I'm glad to see the, the chat is lively today. Thank you. And just a reminder for everyone who came in on this second half of the show, please take a moment and push the like button. Like this video. Get those likes up. Do it now. Share this video on Facebook, YouTube. If you're watching on Twitter, retweet it. And then subscribe. And you can hit the subscribe button in the bottom right corner. There's a little bell. Click the bell. That's the notification bell. That forces YouTube to notify you whenever I go live. And if you're on a tablet or iPhone, you have to go into your settings and turn notifications on for YouTube if you want that to work, by the way. A lot of people say, I hit subscribe and I hit the bell and I never get notified. And you say, you got to go in your iPhone or your tablet settings, notifications, YouTube notifications on, and then it'll work. All right. Last question here. Looking for that question mark. Who's going to be last? Aha, here we go. Let's get everybody hyped up. SSPX question. Thoughts on supplied jurisdiction of the SSPX since Pope Francis gave faculties in 2016. Does this imply they did not have them before. Well, the SSPX will tell you straight up that before 2016, they did not have faculties from the jurisdiction of the Pope before 2016 from, well, what would it be? To, they were founded in 1970. And then I believe the faculties were taken away in 1976. Might have been 75. I'm not sure about that. Uh, so, yeah, from 1976-ish, I'd have to look up the number, until 2016, the Society of St. Pius X never claimed to have uh, faculties from proper jurisdiction. They always claimed to have supplied jurisdiction. And since 2016, they have faculties for hearing confessions and matrimony in most dioceses. Um, no, so they had supplied jurisdiction. I personally do believe in the concept of supplied jurisdiction because it's in theology, it's in canon law, and I think it does supply in cases of emergency. And I think, obviously, if you've listened to my podcast, we are in an ecclesiastical emergency. Uh, there is heresy and schism and apostasy taught in our own diocesan structures, depending on where you live. There's all kinds of madness going on where you literally take your kid to Mass, like I have before at the Novus Ordo, and hear heresy taught to your child during the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass. That's an emergency. That's an emergency. And so to seek the sacraments, namely the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass, extreme unction, confession in those cases from the priests of the society, um, I believe the supply jurisdiction is legitimate. That's just my opinion. I'm not a canonist. I'm not a formal theologian. 
So that's just my opinion. So, um, yeah, I got no problems on that. One last question. Sorry, I said that's the last one. Thoughts on the recent Blessed Carl event? It was awesome. It was so fun to see everybody. It's really good. Really good. And I really like the talk by uh, Edward Habsburg on applying the Habsburg principles and especially the the marriage principles of Blessed Carl and his wife uh, to our own lives. Excellent. Excellent. All right, everybody, thanks for watching. Please like the video, share it, subscribe. Um, if you want to get a free copy of my new book, Antichrist and Apocalypse, there are the levels right there. You can go to patreon.com forward slash DR Taylor Marshall. I'll send you, for example, Rosary in 50 Pages. It's like a $17 book, and I'll send you a free rosary for seven bucks. Different levels here. I'll send you two books. I'll send you three books. I'll send you even more. You got to go to patreon.com forward slash dr taylor marshall look at the different levels i'd really appreciate if you support my work at patreon.com at different levels and i always try to do things to say thank you to the patreons along the way so you can see different levels of support and different ways that i try to say thank you by sending you things and you can see all that at patreon.com forward slash dr taylor marshall and i just want to bring out that you can get rosary in 50 pages Thomas Aquinas, 50 pages, and the new book, Antichrist and Apocalypse, all signed for cheaper than what they would cost on Amazon. So that's, and you get a free rosary. So it's a really good deal. You save a lot of money. Uh, you help me and you get signed versions. So check it out, patreon.com forward slash DR Taylor Marshall. Also, make sure you're praying your rosary every day. I always feel the need to say that. Pray the rosary every day or you're not on the team. This past week at the Blessed Carl event, so many people came to me and said, shook my hand and said, thank you for saying pray the rosary every day you're not on the team. It got me praying the rosary. And there are those days when I was like, eh, I'm not going to pray the rosary. It's late. And then in their head, they heard pray the rosary every day you're not on the team. Like, okay. And they got their beads. They picked them up. They prayed the rosary. And they said, thank you for that. They said, that's the kick in my pants that I needed to just do what I always knew I needed to do. And that's pray the rosary every day. So pray the rosary every day or you're not on the team. Find a traditional Latin mass. Catechize your children in a traditional way. I always recommend the Baltimore Catechism for training your children. For adults, I recommend this book, Catechism of the Council of Trent. Read it cover to cover course, also study Thomas Aquinas, Council of Trent, Ecumenical Councils. If you need help with that, I provide online courses to you, and you can go to NewStThomas.com, NewStThomas.com. I have nine different curricula. I'll be adding a new curriculum to I'll just go ahead and announce it. I'm doing, right now we have a curriculum, a certificate on New Testament, every book of the New Testament, every book of the Old Testament, apologetics, Catholic theology, Catholic philosophy, Thomas Aquinas. We have early church fathers certificate, medieval certificate, reformation and contemporary certificate. And we will be adding a new certificate on the Catholic view of the end times, the antichrist, the apocalypse. That's right. Based on the new book, it'll be a, not an audio, it'll be a video course. So if you'd like to be first in line to get that, you can do fall enrollment right now at NewStThomas.com, New St. Thomas Institute. It's where I teach online classes since 2013. So we've been doing it for nine years. I encourage you 
to sign up there. And by the way, if you go to patreon.com and you go to the student level, which is the fourth level, not only will you get, uh, no, it's a third level. Not only will you get Antichrist and Apocalypse, it's the one on the right, and those three signed books in the rosary, you will also get a free scholarship tuition to newsaintthomas.com for all those courses. So you're getting three books, the rosary, and all the online courses, hundreds and hundreds of lessons, video lessons going through systematic Catholic topics. So you can do that at patreon.com or directly at newsaintthomas.com. All right, that's a show. Everybody, thanks for watching. Remember our Lord Jesus Christ, you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. God bless. Godspeed. Oh, and I'll be back later today. I did not give away the Seraphim Rosary on Friday. We had guests in town. Uh, lots was going on, and I didn't have my kids to help me. So this gorgeous, turquoise, heavy, Seraphim-made, handmade rosary. I believe it's $200. I will be giving this away today, probably in 30 minutes. I'm going to go get a glass of water, get one of my kids, and we'll be back live to give this away. As I said last week, we're giving away a rosary every single week. We'll be giving away another rosary this Friday. And in order to win the rosary, to be in the raffle, you're either a supporter on patreon.com forward slash DR Taylor Marshall, or you're a student at the new St. Thomas Institute. Those are the two pulls from which we pull the name to win these items. So I'll be back here in 30 minutes, maybe 60 minutes. We'll be giving away this rosary to a Patreon or a student at new St. Thomas Institute. All right. God bless. 